Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's part four of our series on the cauldron in today's Vault episode. This one originally published June 16th, 2022. Is there any reason to delay? I don't think there is. Let's go straight to it. Let's jump right in and see what happens. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Cauldrons Part 4. This is really the last Cauldrons episode, <laughs> right? Yes, for now. Um, but no, no, this is the last one. Uh, even my son, when he asked what I was doing today, I said, oh, we're going to record a fourth Cauldrons episode. And he's like, really? Y'all are still doing those Cauldron episodes? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah. This is some more exciting stuff. And, you know, there's so much we're not even going to be able to cover in these episodes. But this is an exciting one because we're going to roll through a few more myths. We have some more uh, content about just how Cauldrons factor into our, our history and our beliefs. Uh, and, you know, we'll get into uh, the Inferno a bit as well. Rob, I am ready to be boiled. <laughs> all right. Well, let's basically we've, we've alluded to this. We've all along we've mentioned that you have some strong Celtic traditions that involve the cauldron, and they end up having uh, an influence over European traditions of the cauldron in general. Uh, so let's roll through just a few of these different myths. Uh, I'm not going to go into super detail on these, though a number of these are the subject of, of epics and longer tales and, of course, treatments and retreatments over the years. Uh, so let's start with the Dagda's Cauldron. Ooh. So Dagda or the Dagda was the most powerful of all the Tuatha de Danann. You know, these are the the magical folk, um, uh, the, you know, the ancestors of uh, of Ireland and so forth. Uh, Dagda was a master of the battle club, uh, the magic harp, and the cauldron. Uh, he was uh, sometimes called the good god because he was simply good at everything. 
Today you'd call him a Mary Sue. <laughs> As uh, Patricia Monaghan explains in the Encyclopedia of Celtic Mythology and Folklore, he was kind of a god of not only fertility, but also kind of exaggerated male desire. So he's round, you know, kind of a rotund individual. His tunic is a bit too short to cover his genitals. Uh, in, in some depictions, anyway, he wields a mallet that's so huge that he has to drag it behind him in a cart. Uh, so he's he's kind of this exaggerated cartoon character in many respects. I like him already. He also has a pair of self-replenishing pigs that you can just keep eating. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm 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 not sure how the details of that work. I'm assuming it's like you cook them up, or you're I don't know if you're slicing pieces off of them. I'm not sure, but at any rate, I don't know that the pigs really mind. They're magical after all. But even more magical than the pigs, he also has a magic cauldron that can never be emptied. It, mm. uh, it, it overfloweth with goodness. Uh, so he has many romantic adventures. He has many children. He's eventually slain in battle by the Cethleon, a wife of the great Fomorian king Balor. And uh, then he goes on to party forever in the other world, sustained by his, uh, his bottomless cauldron that he gets to bring with him into the afterlife. Oh, that's lucky. Yeah. Now, Monaghan, who also wrote the Encyclopedia of Goddesses and Heroines, uh, wrote that uh, that uh, the Irish cauldron is, of course, not only a mundane item for cooking and stewing, but also, quote, a place where new life was brewed and stewed. Uh, it was a symbol of great power for the Celts. The Roman writer Strabo describes a great cauldron sent to Caesar by Simbri and claims that the, the Celts ritually sliced open the throats of prisoners over such a cauldron. And these traditions, to whatever you know, extent they are accurately reported here, may connect to the Gunstrup cauldron that we, were, we talked about in the last episode. Mm. Uh, you know, that was unearthed in Denmark but bearing Celtic symbols, etc. Um, other cauldrons, uh, Monaghan writes, have been found in you know, bogs and lakes and are suspected to have been offerings to the other world. Yeah, that'll actually connect to an archaeology paper I want to talk about in a minute. In general, though, she, she contends that the Irish cauldron means fullness and abundance, and Dagda's cauldron is just a, a, a great example of this, a never-ending supply of good eats. Um, <laughs> the Welsh goddess uh, Sirtuin also uses a cauldron to make a broth that imbues one with great wisdom. Uh, so it's interesting how, you know, we're getting into talking about just sustaining the self, sustaining the body via the contents of the cauldron. But then we kind of take that into another dimension as well, sustaining the mind. Uh, and uh, this will have ramifications on, um, on other storytelling and mythic traditions. All right, we'll come back to some of these ideas, uh, but let's move on to the next uh, myth here. This is another one from Celtic traditions, but it takes the idea of the cauldron as life bringer and kind of uh, puts a different spin on it. This is the story of the Père Dadeni, the cauldron of rebirth. Mm. Now, there are, there are already some, some accounts that indicate that the Dagda's cauldron, in addition to overflowing with great and miraculously healing foods, in some cases, could also raise the dead if they were lowered into the cauldron. And uh, yeah, that leads us into what is perhaps the most noteworthy necromantic cauldron. Um, this is the cauldron of rebirth from Welsh mythology and literature. Um, along with the cauldron of Dagda, it's a key mythic cauldron uh, to understand the artifact's place in European traditions. It's also the primary inspiration for uh, the black cauldron that shows up in the novels of Lloyd Alexander. Mm. 
It factors into a few different tales, including um, Branwen, daughter of Lear, a uh, legendary tale from medieval Welsh literature, and the second of four branches of the Ma Ben Ogion collection of tales. So this is a this is a pretty interesting one, uh, and again, I'm just giving you the broad strokes here. Again, this one has received a, a you know much more expansive treatment in, uh, in in works of literature, but it concerns the mythic conflict between the Welsh and the Irish, and involves the exploits of Ifnissian, the half brother of Bran the Blessed, who has been described as a an easily offended troublemaker or even as a psychotic antihero. Ooh, okay. So this is a guy who does things like mutilate horses, incite wars, uh, burn people alive. So he's not presented as a good guy. He's not. It doesn't even seem like it's one of these cases where you can say, well, today we wouldn't like him, but uh, we have to put him, <laughs> look at him within the context of the time. No, it seems like everyone seems to, to think that he's supposed to be a, a crazy, dangerous fellow. He's not Snake Plissken. He's Darth Vader. Yeah, yeah. But like Darth Vader, he has a redemption arc of sorts. Uh, he ends up uh, engaging in a little bit of self-sacrifice to bring balance uh, to things. Uh, so it, it comes to light that the Irish are using the magical cauldron of rebirth to resurrect their dead warriors so that they can keep on fighting. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the Welsh forces are concerned about this. This is an unfair advantage, right, if you're bringing your own dead back to life onto the battlefield. So what does Ephnissian do? Well, he hides himself among the enemy Irish dead. And then the Irish haul all those dead bodies back. They take them to the cauldron of rebirth. And one by one, they throw them in the cauldron. And then one by one, each warrior emerges once more to fight. Eventually, they come to Ethnician, who, again, is pretending to be a dead Irishman. They throw him into the cauldron alive, and this seems to sort of short-circuit everything. You know, <laughs> the, the cauldron is not designed or made. It does not exist to resurrect the living. It, 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 it totally just screws up everything, and, and somehow Ethnician is then able to destroy the cauldron from within. But in doing so, not only does he shatter the cauldron— but he dies in the process. Oh. And there's some wonderful illustrations of this. I, I want more detail here. Did like did he know that was going to happen to him? Or what did he expect was gonna like did it not just did it not cross his mind that like, oh yeah, I can't be resurrected because I'm not dead yet? I, th I think he knew. I mean, otherwise, it's not okay. that. I mean, the self-sacrifice is diminished if he doesn't uh -huh. know that uh, that this is probably going to destroy him. Uh, so I, I think the general vibe is uh -huh. that yeah, he knows that this will be the end, uh, but it's the only way to stop the cauldron <laughs> of rebirth. Okay, so he's not just being like, dude, I'd love to be resurrected from the dead. <laughs> no, 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 no. All right, uh, I'm going to run through a few other uh, cauldrons of note. There's the cauldron of Drinwich the giant. In medieval Welsh tradition, there are 13 treasures of the island of Britain, entailing various horns and chariots, knives, rings, and more. But there's also a cauldron owned by the, gi the giant Drenwich, which can tell brave men from cowards because it will not boil meat for a coward, but will quickly boil meat for a brave man. Now, I'm not sure if there was a vegetarian option, but... Um, <laughs> Basically, it's, it's said to just be massive enough to cook an entire wedding feast within. Uh, it eventually falls into the possession of King Arthur in, in some tellings. But yeah, I guess it's like if, if, if you're not sure if somebody is, is brave or cowardly, you just have them bring forth their chicken cutlets, throw them into the cauldron here, and see what happens. 
Here's another one where I wonder about the mechanics of exactly what that means. So you put the meat in. Does it mean if you're a coward, the water won't come to a boil? Or does it mean even if it boils, the meat won't get tender? I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm just imagining it like, okay, you put the meat in and maybe the water looks like it's boiling, but mm-hmm. the meat's not cooking. You just got some some raw chicken cutlets in there just bobbing around. Well, it reminds me of those stories of um, people up on mountaintops trying to cook food, like boiling potatoes in mm. a pot on Mount Everest where your potatoes don't get cooked because when you oh, go yeah. higher and higher into the, into the atmosphere, the uh, boiling point of water goes down. So you can be there boiling a pot on the stove and it is actually boiling, like it's bubbling and turning into steam. But the boiling point is so low that the water is actually not hot enough to cook your food. So you can boil potatoes at the top of a mountain for a long time, take them out, and they're basically still raw. Mm. Yeah, I don't have an answer for that, but it does make me wonder to what extent, like to, to, uh, experiences with different altitudes and, uh, and, and, and attempts to boil uh, stuff in a cauldron, how that might affect this. Because they they would clearly notice. You would know that, uh, well, here it, it seems to take longer to, yeah. to cook our food. Uh, why might that be? I, I haven't done the math. I don't know if there are peaks in Britain high enough for that to happen. I'm, I'm not mm. sure. Maybe. Though perhaps word of, of this had traveled. Who knows? <laughs> Let's see. Here's another cauldron. This one uh, comes from Norse mythology. Hymer is a giant and the father of two Acer gods. According to uh, Carol Rose, he was said to live on the eastern edge of the universe and had a brewing pot or a cauldron so large that the heavens could fit inside it. So we, we, meant, we alluded to something like this earlier in one of the other episodes about the cauldron becomes kind of like a model, a technological model for the cosmos itself. Mm-hmm. And here we have a cauldron so vast that the universe itself fits inside it. Where is the cauldron? Well, you're thinking too hard about this myth, or maybe you're not. I mean, maybe that's ultimately kind of the goal of one of these stories is to sort of give you a real head spinner about, uh, about the nature of the universe. So that's the cauldron itself, but there, is a, there are some stories attached to it. Okay. Uh, so at one point, the gods decide they're going to have a great feast, uh, but they, they need some sort of vessel to put all the mead that they're going to drink. And they're the gods. They can drink a lot of mead. So they send Thor to borrow uh, a Hymer's brewing cauldron. So uh, Thor shows up and Hymer says, no. Uh, you can't borrow this. But uh, they start um, discussing it, and they agree, well, well, let's settle this. We'll have a fishing contest. And there are apparently many different versions of what follows next. Um, in one version, Hymer uses two bowls to, uh, as bait and then catches two whales. But then Thor, not to be outdone, catches the Midgard Sorm itself, the world serpent. Um <laughs> In some versions, the results are inconclusive or they're disputed, so they move on to a drinking contest uh, after the fishing contest. And in some tales, Thor wins and takes the vessel with him or finally just steals it, and Hymer chases after him with an army of giants, and Thor has to smite all of them with his hammer. Um, But at any rate, Thor usually ends up with the cauldron, and the cauldron's power, again, is that it's just super big. Mm. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. 
And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So maybe this is a good place in the discussion to talk about an interesting paper I was reading, an archaeology paper. So uh, this was published by... Uh, the Proceedings of the Prehistoric Society, uh, Cambridge University Press in 2014, and it's called Fire, Burn, and Cauldron Bubble, Iron Age and Early Roman Cauldrons of Britain and Ireland by Jody Joy. Uh, the author of this paper, Jody Joy, is a senior curator at the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology at the University of Cambridge. And the paper begins with a quote I really like. It says, uh, it's an old Kazakh saying that a man can live to 50, but a cauldron will live to 100. Oh, wow. <laughs> you go compare yourself to a cauldron now. Uh, but anyway, uh, so Joy uh, begins with some sections examining the archaeological record of cauldrons in Britain and Ireland from the Iron Age and the early Roman period. And the early parts of this paper go into a sort of catalog of all these different uh, cauldron artifacts and a discussion of their manufacture and physical characteristics. Uh, one of the main things about this section is that cauldrons of the time uh, took a lot of skill to produce. Uh, but the part of this paper that really got my attention was his section on 
the use and significance of cauldrons from this period. Now, it's obvious from the prominent role of cauldrons in myths and legends, like the ones we've just been talking about, uh, and as magical items in early medieval literature from Ireland and Wales, that these objects were charged with mythical significance, uh, particularly associated with resurrection and sacrifice. But if you think about it, why would just a big metal pot have any particular symbolic or mythic significance? Now, Rob, we, we've already talked about some ideas we've had on that, that maybe uh, it has something to do with the way that cauldrons transform foods when you cook them. Though, of course, that's true of smaller pots as well. You know, cooking mm. transforms and thus uh, it maybe is symbolic of, of transformation in some way. But there are other uh, ways that they could acquire magical significance as well. And Joy argues that uh, some of the significance might be related to how these objects were actually used and their role in the culture of Iron Age Britain and Ireland. So how were they used? Uh, this is a good question, because there, there are several lines of evidence pointing to the conclusion that these huge pots were primarily used to cook food, particularly soups and stews containing meat. Now, we, we've already sort of been assuming the, the soup and stew connection, but technically, you know, just a big metal pot could have been used for all kinds of things. So mm -hmm. it is good to examine what the actual evidence is. And we know of examples where large metal vessels were used for uh, other things. They, they might have been just decorative or they might have been used to make burnt offerings to the gods or something like that. But no, in the case of these cauldrons from uh, from Iron Age and, and early Roman uh, Britain and Ireland, uh, first of all, it seems they were clearly designed to hold liquid. And we can tell because almost all of the cauldrons from this period in this place show signs of having been through repairs, which in itself is interesting because it indicates a long social life for each individual cauldron. You know, they're being used long enough that people have to like go in and fix them up after they, they get damaged. Yeah, it kind of takes us back to that quote, right? Uh, you may live to be 50, but your cauldron will live to be 100. Right. Um, nowadays, humans may live to be 100, but like these cauldrons, you'll probably have to have some holes patched here and there. <laughs> That's true. Uh, and and so uh, wh why do we think that these cauldrons were designed to hold liquid? It's because when you look at the repairs that were done to them, we see that they're essentially repairs that would function to keep the cauldrons water tight. And if these were just decorative or if they were used for, say, like making a burnt offering to the gods or something, they wouldn't need to patch tiny holes and keep the vessel watertight. It's obvious that they wanted to prevent leaks. Second line of evidence, they were clearly designed to be suspended over fires. So uh, this can be seen from the presence of uh, sort of uh, supplemental materials like chains, handles, and frames that would all serve to hang or suspend the cauldron over a hearth. Uh, and also, many cauldrons have layers of soot caked onto the outside surface, showing that a fire was applied to them from the outside. Hmm. Third, you've got organic residues. A uh, few artifacts from this period, for example, a group known as the Chiseldon Cauldrons, have been sampled for organic residues on the inner surfaces, and chemical analyses indicate the presence of animal fats, which points to soups or stews containing meat. However, some cauldrons from Northwest Europe also show traces of honey, probably indicating their use in serving honey-based meads, which uh, would be an alcoholic beverage. Hmm. Yeah, which brings us back to the, the, the myth of the giant's uh, brewing cauldron, yeah. Yeah. 
So these cauldrons were almost definitely used mostly for cooking food, usually meat-based soups and stews, but sometimes alcoholic beverages as well. Uh, but can we infer anything else about how they were used? Well, Joy argues, yes, we can, and points uh, specifically to the fact that these were big boys. These <laughs> cauldrons are huge. Quote, the cauldron from Hochdorf could hold 500 liters. The cauldrons examined here had more modest capacities, ranging from 30 to 80 liters, even taking into account the fact that they are unlikely to have been filled to the brim and probably only ever two-thirds full. Even the smallest cauldrons still probably contained 20 liters. This is a substantial quantity of food and drink. <laughs> And I agree. I, I don't think I could eat 20 liters of soup in a single sitting. But that alone, you can easily imagine this becoming extrapolated into myths of cauldrons that are just so full of goodness that you cannot empty it. You cannot possibly eat all of this food. Now, combine the bigness of these boys with the another factor, which is that cauldrons are relatively scarce in the archaeological record compared to other types of household items, uh, even those made of similar materials. And from these facts, Joy infers that cauldrons were not used for everyday cooking, but instead they were used for the community-based practice of feasting. Mm. And I believe the argument is that this is sort of what gives cauldrons their special power, what makes them uh, fit for use as a recurring magical item in myths and legends and literature. Uh, Joy writes as follows. At their heart, feasts involve the creation and maintenance of social relationships and can be used to redistribute wealth, mobilize labor, create alliances between or exclude different groups, celebrate marriages, commemorate deaths, and compensate for transgressions. As objects used during feasts, cauldrons help facilitate these activities, and that is where much of their significance and value derives. So Joy is arguing that feasting was this incredibly important tradition in the cultures of Iron Age Europe, and it had this complex suite of social utilities. And the paper invokes the work of a different scholar named uh, Michael Dietler, who has created three different categories uh, of, of sort of the social roles of feasting, which are empowering, the patron role, and the diacritical. So uh, empowering feasts, uh, quote, allow people or groups to acquire prestige without necessarily requiring the existence of fixed social hierarchies. By hosting a feast, debts or obligations are passed on to guests, thus making feasts arenas for negotiations of social influence. But empowering feasts can also be viewed as celebrations of community identity. So there's a lot that's going on here in this first category. Like you, you could host a feast and serve people out of a cauldron, and th this is this is a powerful community uh, activity. And in one sense, it maybe makes everybody who's at the feast feel more united. It's, it's you know um, it cements this idea of community identity, but it also sort of puts guests in your debt. It is you know empowering mm -hmm. to the host in terms of enhancing their perceived social prestige, maybe even making them feel temporarily like some kind of uh, king or something. Uh, and then there are a couple of other types of feasts. One are the the patron role feasts, where there um, is sort of an it's sort of like without the strings attached. It's the, an expectation that the social elite must host, but not necessarily the the obligation uh, for reciprocation by the guests. 
And then finally, there's uh, what is called a diacritical feast. And this is where subgroups of a culture consume different types of food or drink to emphasize their difference from other people. Interesting. I mean, I don't know if this is a a useful exercise, but I can't help but try and take these categories and apply them to modern communal feasting situations. Like, Hmm. I I do feel like the patron role feast does sound a lot like the office Christmas party, you know, (laughs) where... Uh, you know, it's kind of expected that the, uh, that the the boss powers will provide you with some sort of a food or, you know, some sort of wine from plastic cups at least. Uh, uh-huh. But there's no, it doesn't mean that we need to host the next feast for our right. bosses. It, d- it doesn't put you any more in the boss's debt or service than you were already. Right. But then if, the, I don't know, the, the first category, the empowering feast, if you, your CEO was to suddenly out of the blue say, hey, why don't you and your family come over to my house for a little get-together we're going to have? Um, yeah. <laughs> you wonder what they're going to hit you up for. Yeah. Yeah, that might be some sort of situation where there are strings attached. I'm not sure exactly how best to apply the diacritical one because I, I don't know exactly like to what extent that would apply to religious rituals like, say, uh, like Christian communion or things like that. Um, Mm. uh, I mean, that's where my brain went, but maybe that doesn't really apply. I'm not sure. Uh, it, it does make me wonder, like, I I don't know, you know, you know, they're like eggnog people and and non-eggnog people. And I wonder if, uh, oh, that's going nowhere. (laughs) Yeah. The only thing that comes to mind is, is potluck for some reason. Like I'm imagining different Mm. people bringing their different dishes, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I may be missing the but mark on this. I don't know if that really serves to emphasize difference. This may just be a sort of a category that doesn't really show up in American mm. culture today. Maybe it will. Maybe it's the food court at the mall. <laughs> Celebration of differences. Everybody can get what they want. You don't have to like the other person's food. It's just about whatever you eat. Maybe not. Maybe. Does <laughs> that emphasize your difference? I don't know. Well, yeah, okay. Is there anything more divisive uh, than the, the mall food court? I don't know. I have vivid memories of of walking through the, my mall food court when I was a kid because there was a uh, there was a Japanese place where they would have somebody out with a tray handing out little bites of chicken teriyaki and it was so delicious they they would oh man sometimes I would walk by multiple times I, <laughs> oh but anyway so to come back to the idea of like the the the, the magic power infusing the cauldron as a symbol being in some way related to the role of cauldrons in feasting traditions, it strikes me that in many ways the cauldron could be seen as a symbol kind of like a crown with with this view because it's, you know, it's symbolic of power, of power over the social order, of like possessing the kind of uh, the wealth and abundance that you can freely give out to others by hosting a feast, um, but also being symbolic of the ties that bind a community. Another thing that this paper highlights is the way that cauldrons are often uh, apparently deposited intact in some deliberate, perhaps ritual manner uh, in in the ground or in the water. They're sort of buried, seemingly given as offerings to gods or to ancestors. Uh, This would be, uh, though it's it's sort of confusing because (laughs) there were some people saying it's not a cauldron, but this was the case with the Gundestrup cauldron, right? That it was Mm -hmm. apparently deliberately deposited in the bog. Um, This also appears to be something that happens with things that are definitely actually cauldrons used for cooking. 
And Joy makes a connection between this kind of ritual use and the use of the cauldron in feasting, saying, quote, the use of cauldrons as receptacles for symbolic foodstuffs is drawn upon in deposition, and they are instead used as containers for another kind of offering, this time to deities or ancestors rather than attendees at feasts. Hmm. So at the end, uh, Joy summarizes and says, yeah, probably a major reason why cauldrons are such a uh, such a respected and fearsome magical object in all these stories is that they are socially powerful objects. They they represent social power and they're used in powerful social customs, mainly feasting, uh, because feasting is something that establishes hierarchies, that is used as, as expressions of individual power or used to... To strengthen the identity of a community, and it's interesting how how this this seems to apply rather broadly. Like this this could have been uh, a quotation from any of the papers we were looking at concerning um, uh, cauldrons in Eastern traditions as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that like the cauldron is a thing that produces ma- uh, can produce a massive quantity of food. It can be made to used to make a sacrifice. It is a symbol of power. Those who possess the cauldron, uh, it, it means something. It stands for something. I mean, I'm trying to think how this compares to uh, modern things. Like, what's a type of serving vessel or some type of food-related thing that you wouldn't really use just for you and your own household? You only break out to certain, like, when you're hosting a party. I guess maybe a punch bowl, or uh, or maybe a fondue set, or something like that. These other things that would serve a similar function. They're like an object that symbolizes your your power to host. Yeah, yeah. I guess you could also get into the whole realm of like the fine china, the good silverware and so forth, which is kind of the the cauldronization of your entire uh, dining room, I guess. <laughs> I mean, sometimes that is part of it. It's like it's not all, it's, it's the special dining room, the, the place where we we don't normally eat dinner, but this is a special event. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. So at this point, we're going to finally come around to something that a number of you may have been thinking about, and that is the Holy Grail. Uh, So given all of these associations with cauldrons and rebirth, it's notable that connections have have certainly been made between pre-Christian traditions of sacred cauldrons and the the medieval legacy of uh, the literary concept of the Holy Grail. Mm. Uh, The Grail, after all, is not a product of biblical texts, but rather emerges during the medieval period, with our earliest mention of it coming from a work by Chrétien de Troyes, a 12th century French poet. It's thought that the concept of the Holy Grail, the goblet which collects the blood of Christ, is a combination of pre-existing cauldron traditions and the rite of the Eucharist, uh, while generally depicted as a cup, some, especially in more modern renditions, you know, this is the thing you're going to see Indiana Jones holding. This is mm-hmm. the what you're going to see in the clouds in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, still, other other times it seems to connect with the idea, certainly when you get into the etymology of the word, it uh, connects with this idea of a bowl or some other kind of uh, serving vessel uh, of varying materials. So it doesn't necessarily need to be made of solid gold or whatnot. So very loosely speaking, there seems to be a connection between Celtic legends involving cauldrons, 13th century romances and uh, uh, in, that end up involving uh, the, the, the grail and then centuries worth of tales to follow. Mm-hmm. I also think it's interesting that, that while the rite of immersion baptism in Christian traditions has its roots in the use of rivers and streams, modern churches often use artificial baptism tanks that wind up feeling more in line with some of these uh, ideas of immersion within a cauldron. Uh, mm-hmm. did, did you think about any of that as we were rolling through this stuff? No, I did not really make that connection, though. Yeah, obviously, there it, it is a broader theme, the idea of immersion in some kind of liquid being a transformative process and uh, the process of baptism, which of course, baptism actually, you know, predates Christianity, even in the mm-hmm. Bible, John the Baptist was baptizing people in the river Jordan before, right. uh, before Christianity was invented. So, you know, this, this is an idea that goes way back and is applied in many different contexts. Yeah. And so we see it, yeah, we see it again in the imagery on the Gundestrup cauldron. There is something going on there where there's some kind of baptism like event where a God is like dunking, uh, slain warriors headfirst into a cauldron, and this is somehow transforming them into some other state. Yeah. All right. Speaking of other states, it's uh, it's time to go to hell once more. 
Okay. So, uh, we, you know, we mentioned in uh, one of the previous Cauldrons episodes that uh, Western connections to divine cauldrons may have prevented their use in some depictions of hell in later Christian traditions. Uh, and despite the fact that certainly many of those myths involve people being immersed in said cauldrons and the fact that death by cauldron was very much a thing in parts of Europe as well, um, this in, in talking about European ideas and medieval ideas of hell, of course, there's, there's one place we end up having to go to, and that, of course, is Dante's Inferno in the Divine Comedy. A lot of modern ideas about, uh, about the Christian hell are from Dante. You, know, you can't find them anywhere in the Bible. Right, right. And, and beyond hell, I mean, you get into the idea of purgatory, etc. I mean, Dante's work was an, in, incredibly influential. And uh, if you start looking around, though, for examples of, of death by cauldron or cauldron immersion or, you know, tor cauldron torture in, in Dante's Inferno, you do find uh, a few interesting things. So in Canto 23, in which it depicts the torment of hypocrites uh, uh, who wear cloaks with hoods, bright colors, and lead linings, uh, yeah, we see uh, a reference to death by cauldron. Uh, this is in the sixth trench of the Malabolga. I'm going to read from a, a translation here. Outside these cloaks were gilded and they dazzled, but inside they were all of lead, so heavy that Frederick's capes were straw compared to them. A tiring mantle for eternity. We turned again, as always, to the left, along with them, intent on their sad weeping. But with their weights, the wary people paced so slowly that we found ourselves among new company each time we took a step. And then uh, they, uh, Dante comes back to this. And one of them replied, The yellow cloaks are of a lead so thick their heaviness makes us. The balances beneath them creak. Now, the allusion here apparently is to death by cauldron. Um, and uh, I was looking into this in the notes to the Durling and Martinez edition of uh, Dante's Inferno that I have. Uh, there was apparently a Guelph propaganda campaign against Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II, who lived 1194 through 1250, that charged him with uh, him having punished uh, traitors by encasing them in lead and then roasting them. Uh, at least in some tellings, this was achieved by placing the lead-cloaked individual inside of a cauldron. Now, the Guelphs were a political faction who supported the papacy against the Holy Roman Emperor, and they were opposed by the Ghibellines, uh, who basically had the opposite values. Now, on top of this, there are boilings in the Inferno. There are boilings aplenty. Uh, most notably, there is the river of, uh, of Phlegathon, which is literally a river of boiling blood in which the souls of the damned writhe. Here, those who perpetrated violence against other humans are tormented. You have centaurs patrolling the banks of the river, uh, pelting anyone with arrows if they try to rise above their station in the river. I seem to recall uh, Virgil and Dante end up talking to these centaurs a good bit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've forgotten the conversation with the centaurs, but you know, they, they have so many wonderful conversations. Uh -huh. Now, elsewhere, uh, at the back of the Malabolga, uh, the evil ditches of torment, the fifth trench consists of a river of burning pitch. And here, the demons of the Malabraca use cruel skewers to make sure uh, the grafters punished here stay immersed and don't escape. And uh, Durling and Martinez translate this as uh, part of this as follows, quote, Not otherwise do cooks have their servants push down with hooks the meat cooking in a broth so that it may float. 
So here once more, we have cooking imagery and uh, mm -hmm. the authors discuss this at length. They have a little uh, a, a bit in the back where they, they break this down a bit more. So Dante was essentially building upon various well-established metaphors here, especially for frauds, counterfeits, and other false individuals who are tormented in this particular portion of the Inferno. Uh, various of the uh, parts of the, the Malabolga feature, quote, sharply focused parodies of cooking and digestion. So this part of the Inferno is kind of like, they say, a great spider web, but also it is kind of like the belly or the winding intestines of hell. Uh, there's a lot here about the consumer being consumed. Uh, cooking metaphors were often wound up in discussing the fraudulent, and we see that today Cook as the well. Cooking the books, yeah. Yeah, yeah, cooking the books. Um, uh, there's also the scheme is cooked up. If we're, if we're tricked into following it, you know, we're, we're eating it up or we're being fed a lie or fed a con, that sort of thing. Mm, yeah. So Dante, as always, is painting with a number of palettes here, uh, but, but touches on various elements that we've discussed already in this series. Cooking as digestion, uh, cooking as transformation, cooking as torment. There are also various depictions of hell, uh, outside of Dante's work, of hell as a cauldron, though, of course, Dante's layout for the Inferno is far more complex than that, uh, you know, not geared around a single technological metaphor, but a larger mix of influences and illusions. You can't, you can't tie Dante down and just ask him to compare all of hell to just one thing. That's, that's not the game he's playing. Though, of course, Christian hell and, and Dante's version of it in Inferno, uh, we have to remind ourselves this is not a transformative realm like we see in Eastern traditions of hell, uh, where it's about the soul being transformed into something else. No, uh, it doesn't even, the, these versions of hell don't even accomplish transformation via annihilation. Um, now, certainly within the Divine Comedy, you get into purgatory, and that is about transformation. Uh, and certainly that concept, uh, the, the concept of purgatory that we see within the Divine Comedy, has more in common with Eastern traditions of the afterlife. Yeah. Anyway, there, still on top of this, there are certainly visual and literary depictions of hell cauldrons in Christian and European traditions. I don't imagine you could keep them out of hell if you wanted to, even if you have... You know, say, again, like a, a Celtic tradition in the background uh, in which the, the, the cauldron seems a little too holy uh, and a little too special to be a part of some sort of uh, delirious hell painting. Somebody is going to be like, oh, but, but what if you were cooked in a soup? Or how about that guy that we boiled last week for, uh, for making fraudulent coins? Uh, <laughs> like it, the idea is going to worm its way in there. There's no way you're going to keep that image out of your imagined afterlife. None of this hell imagery really seems to have anything to do with uh, with hosting or feasting, does it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but um, but I mean, it does have a lot to do with uh, uh, with eating and digestion. So, yeah. I mean, it's it everything's seated at the same table one way or another here. I'm still thinking about modern analogies for the the cauldron as a symbol of hosting power. Uh, it, it, so I said the punch bowl earlier, maybe the fondue set, if it was the, I don't know, the seventies or eighties, whenever that was. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the one that just came to me is like the really nice smoker, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. The, the, the big green ones and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to host a barbecue and look all the, look at all the meat I can make. Oh yeah. Yeah. Big grills in general. Yeah. I think totally the, uh, a really nice charcoal grill or gas grill is very much in keeping with the tradition of the cauldron. 
And uh, I mean, the, the idea of a low country boil or it's or variations uh, the, uh, of the low country boil in which, you know, you essentially, essentially you have a cauldron and you're going to cook up, uh, cook up a whole bunch of shrimp and uh, a few veggies and so forth. Uh, you know, that's very much in the tradition. Uh, spill it all out on the, the table and, and let's all have a feast. I don't know that that would really be a special pot, but I mean, just sometimes when we're talking about special, we could be talking about uh, an ornate vessel, but sometimes it's just the fact that it is large. I have yeah. a pot large enough to, to, to create a low country boil that that's in and of itself is impressive. You've got family in Louisiana, right? Or do you? Do you uh, down in that area. Yeah. Southern okay. Mississippi. Yeah. Okay. You do crawfish boils or have you done that? Oh yeah. 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 Uh, so basically a big, a big metal cauldron in the front yard. Uh, the gas uh, flame underneath it, cooking uh-huh. up a bunch of shrimp. Uh, some older man telling, like, scolding you for not sucking the heads, <laughs> telling you you got to suck the heads. You know yeah, that experience. That's yeah. what they say. Yeah, with the with the crawl dads, the mud yeah. bugs. Okay, I think maybe we're done. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, obviously, we'd love to hear from everyone out there about very certainly this question, like the special thing in your household or a household you grew up in, or or just you know a cultural tradition surrounding you. Like, what is what is your version of of the the sacred cauldron, the sacred festival for feasts? Uh, what is the or, or what is the dish that is central to your experiences that uh, that matches up with all of this? Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on that about anything that we've discussed in these four episodes on the cauldron. So we'll be back next time with uh, with with something new, something uh, non cauldron related. Uh, so we hope you'll join us. Core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind air on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. On Mondays we usually do a listener mail episode. On Wednesdays we usually do a short form artifact or monster fact episode. And on Fridays we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a strange film. Huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on I'm this. <laughs> people that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.